Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the editor of Native Americans in the Susquehanna River Valley, Past and Present, David Minderhout. Our guest for the next hour is David Minderhout. He is the author and editor of this book, Native Americans in the Susquehanna River Valley, Past and Present. Now, people might be surprised about Native Americans in the Susquehanna Valley in the present. How many are here? We don't know for sure. What uh, numbers are out there are U.S. Census numbers, and those are based upon self-reports, what people identify themselves as on the census reports. Uh, the last census, the 2010 census, indicated there were about 85,000 people in Pennsylvania that claimed Native American ancestry. You ask a question early in the book uh, about why do you consider yourself a Native American? What does it take for somebody to check that box on the census report? There's a lot of answers to that question. Uh, the skeptics would say that all it takes is a pencil. Uh, there are others who say that you have to have significant proof one way or another, family history, DNA, genealogical research, something of that sort, that there is a Native American ancestor in your background. Most of the people we're going to be talking about here, most of the people talked about in the book, are not entirely of Native American background. Their heritage goes back typically into the 18th or 19th century, and it's often a grandmother, a great-grandmother, or at least a single person in their line who had that heritage. And they've chosen in the modern era to claim that heritage, to hang on to that descent and take pride in it. Now, you were on this program about five years ago for I your was. book, Invisible Indians, right. and you addressed the issue about people think there aren't any Native Americans in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, this book talks about the, what's going on now, but did the Native Americans leave and come back, or did they intermarry and assimilate, or who's here and who is not here? They never left. Uh, there are descendants of the Lenape, who were the native people of Pennsylvania, at least of eastern Pennsylvania, at the time of contact, who have moved to other parts of the world. That happened in the 18th century. There's a population in Oklahoma. There's a population in Wisconsin. There's a population in Ontario, people who identify as Lenapes or Munsees from eastern Pennsylvania originally. But the people that I'm talking about in each of the books are people who are descendants of, for the most part, Europeans and Native Americans who did not choose to leave, who, when the circumstances arose, uh, hid, in essence, particularly in the 18th century around the time of the French and Indian War when it became very unpopular to be a Native American in Pennsylvania. They would, as one of my informants said, they hunkered down. They assimilated, they did their best to hide within the, the population. They didn't want to leave their native land. And because they were typically married to non-Indians, it was something that was possible for them to do. 
But what you hear over and over again when you interview the people that I'm talking about in the course of these books, they will tell you that uh, grandmother always said we were native, but don't tell anybody. You know, there might be some danger involved in that. And that apparently continued as a concern well into the 20th century. Uh, people as late as the 1980s saying that we were still being told things like that. It just wasn't a smart thing to do to identify as a Native American. Since then, happily, uh, a lot of people have come forward. Not all of them are legitimate in the sense that, they are, that there are some out there that don't have any Native American background but have chosen to adopt that persona. But even that, uh, one of the things you find going back into the 17th century is Europeans coming to this hemisphere and wanting to become Native Americans, uh, copying their ways, living among them, being adopted into Native American communities. Uh, it, uh, Native Americans, for the most part, were not concerned about your, quote, blood, unquote. They were concerned about your attitude. And if you were somebody that they admired or they were comfortable with or they liked in one kind of a way or another, you could become one of them. And there's a long history of that kind of thing that went on in, in North America. So assimilation went both ways. It did go both ways. And uh, possibly, there's some debate over what I'm about to, just about to tell you, but possibly the first person to which this happened was Captain John Smith. His famous story about Pocahontas saving him from certain death. When you read that account of his, it sounds very much like some of, the, some of the things that other Eastern tribes did when they were bringing somebody new, not of their tribe, into their particular nation. They would have that person run the gauntlet or engage in some kind of risky behavior only to pull back at the last moment and give the person a reprieve. And there are historians now who say that was what was happening to John Smith. He just didn't understand it at the time since he didn't speak the local language, but they were making him one of them. Well, at the time of first contact, what was, what was the situation with Native Americans here? And, and what year was first contact? And you'd mentioned the Lenai Lenape. How, was it, how did it all work? Well, in 1633, a Dutch sailing boat came up the Delaware River and made contact with both of the native peoples of Pennsylvania, the Susquehannocks and the Lenape. And that is the first recorded incident of Europeans meeting people, native people, in what we now call Pennsylvania. They'd had previous contact, the Dutch had had previous contact in New York. Uh, the people who sold Manhattan Island to the Dutch were Lenape people. They'd had contact in Delaware and, in fact, had signed a treaty for land in Delaware before 1633. But the first thing that we have historical evidence of, of Europeans coming into what we now consider to be Pennsylvania, was 1633. And they had two very different experiences. The Susquehannocks attacked them, and the Lenapes welcomed them and gave them food. They were a contingent from a whaling boat out in the Atlantic that had run out of its food they were starving, and they came into, onto the river to, to hope to find food. The Lenape took them in, gave them food and beaver pelts, which really then set off eventually the great uh, desire for beaver and other fur-brained creatures in Europe. Did the Lenape, what kind of relationship did the Lenape and the Susquehannocks have? It was hostile for the most mm. part. Uh, the Susquehannocks had only moved into what we now think of as the Delaware River Valley area 
in fairly recent times. In 1633, they were in the area about 1550, 1560 or so. And the relationship between them had been hostile. The Susquehannocks had attacked the Lenape. The Lenape, and Don Repture in this collection of articles puts this very well, the, the Lenape were people who were very peaceful. They reached out to others, they tried to accommodate relationships with other people, they welcomed the Dutch, they welcomed the Swedes in Delaware, they welcomed the English, they met with William Penn, they were very diplomatic about their relationships. And for most of the history of Lenape relationships with Europeans, it's Lenape saying, okay, don't bother us, we'll go off here. You know, leave us alone, you live where you want to live, we'll live where we live, uh, we can get along with each other. They were very accommodating. The Susquehannocks had a long history of conflict with the Iroquois in New York State. And um, they were first encountered by Europeans in what is now in New York State, but right on the border between New York and Pennsylvania at a place called Spanish Hill. Um, it's on the north branch of the Susquehanna River. And they had begun to move down the river in the 16th century and eventually end up in Lancaster County with their major town being a Washington borough. And uh, nobody knows for sure why they did that, but it's generally thought that they ran into problems with the five nations of the Iroquois in New York State and were driven downstream. And they eventually ran into problems with English settlers coming up from Maryland and their numbers were significantly reduced as a consequence of conflict and smallpox. You mentioned the Iroquois Nation and the Iroquois Confederacy. How did right. that work? How was it governed? Iroquois Confederacy was very much like the federal system of the United States. And there are people who argue today that Jefferson and Franklin used the Iroquois as a model for the United States when they drew up their ideas of what government could be like here. How you could have 13 independent states and a federal government that united them under one flag. And that's what the Iroquois did. Uh, the Iroquois were five different populations, all Iroquoian speaking, speaking, but different languages they spoke, slightly different customs, living at different places in what is now New York State, from Eastern where the, with the Mohawks to the Senecas in the West. And at some point in their past, nobody knows for sure when, they decided to stop being independent nations and to come together in a confederacy. And in that confederacy, each one of those five nations had autonomy within its area. But they would send representatives to a council periodically who would meet and talk about issues that spanned the, the local communities. So you had very much like the state and federal system that we have today. States can oversee some issues, but some things are too big and they have to go to the federal government. That's what happened with the Iroquois. And the Iroquois still govern themselves that way. And uh, the Lenape and the Susquehannock were not part of the Iroquois? They were not. The Susquehannocks were Iroquoian-speaking peoples. That language family includes a lot of Native Americans, including the Cherokee. Um, but they were not part of the Confederacy. They may have been ousted because of some conflicts they had with other Iroquoian nations. But people who study the Iroquois, and the Iroquois are not my area of strength, I should say, right up front. But people who study the Iroquois say that in the 18th and 19th century, there were Susquehannocks, individual Susquehannocks, living in Seneca villages and Cayuga villages and Onondaga villages. They were, had enough in common with the Iroquois so that they could blend into those kinds of communities. 
the Lenape were respected by the Iroquois. One translation of Lenape is common or the people. And one of the ideas that come out of the native peoples of the East is the concept of the Lenapes were the first, that they were the first people on the Atlantic coast. And Leonard Lenape means essentially the original people. And the Iroquois spoke of them as the grandfather people. That was their label for them, that they are the ones who, who started the Native American way of life in this part of the world, and all the rest of us came along some point later in time. So they had an enormous amount of respect for the Lenape. Just a, a little bit about labels. The, the Lenape were also called the Delaware? They were called the Delaware and are called the Delaware. But that name is a Dutch name? It actually was something the English imposed on them. The English had a custom in their early colonial history. When they came in contact with native peoples, they called them by the waterway on which those people lived. So for example, what I call the Susquehannocks, the English called the Conestogas because they confronted them firstly on the Conestoga Creek in Lancaster County and that's what they called them. Uh, the English named this big river the Delaware River. Their Lenape were living on it and so they became Delawares. Today there are Lenapes who call themselves Delawares and there's Delawares who call themselves Lenape. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, within, the, within Pennsylvania, there's two major Lenape organizations. One calls itself the Eastern Delaware Nations, and the other calls itself the Lenape Society of Pennsylvania. So, so some of them, but they're interchangeable. They adopted the name that the English gave them. They did. Uh, again, the Lenape were very accommodating people. And you'll find, even in the late 17th century, them starting to build log cabins and living in them, adopting uh, European livestock like pigs and cows, growing uh, peach trees and apple trees that colonists had brought seeds for. They looked at things that came along and were happy to adopt them. And another uh, question about labels, uh, and this is the, the afterword by Anne Dapis. 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 Mm -hmm. uh, as it is customary in Indian country, I will generally use the term Indian since that is what most Indians call themselves. Yes. Yes. Who calls them Native Americans? Uh, Non-Indians call them Native Americans. So Indians do call themselves Indians? Oh, very much so, yes. Uh, in my experience, when you're talking to one in a, the kind of oral history experience that I have with them, people will start out calling themselves Native American, but they very quickly slide into calling themselves Indian. And I've had uh, Indians say they don't like the term Native American because, first of all, it's been imposed upon them. And second of all, that's too politically correct from their point of view. You know, they see themselves as Indians. I include a quote in the book from the Native American activist Russell Means, who says, I like to call myself an American Indian because we're the only American ethnicity where American comes first. And he said, the day is coming when we will have equality. The day is coming when we will be treated like everybody else is. And on that day, we'll call ourselves any damn thing we please. You've done a lot of oral histories with uh, Indians in Pennsylvania? I have. How do you locate them and what do you learn from them? It's, it's, it can be a difficult process. When I first started out, um, I was told by other scholars that, well, first of all, there weren't any Native Americans, but if you came across them, they wouldn't talk to you. And you know, neither of those things has been my experience. 
this project started, and we talked about this a little time, a little bit with the last interview with the, the book Invisible Indians. Uh, that was co-authored with my student Andrea Franz. She was the one who really got this thing going, uh, largely because she had a boyfriend who had Mohawk background, and who was telling her about his experience of being derided because he said he was Native American. People were telling him you couldn't possibly be. And so she said she wanted to look into this question, were there others? And as soon as she started looking, she found out there were powwows going on in different parts of Pennsylvania, particularly in northeastern Pennsylvania. And so she started going to powwows and setting up a table and handing out questionnaires to get some feedback from local people. People came up and started talking to her. Uh, she came to me and said, this project is growing faster than I ever imagined it would. Will you come in on this with me? And we began to work together. And we used the powwows as our jumping off point. And we'd say, you know, if you're going to fill this questionnaire out, would you mind talking to us? And we would conduct some interviews right at the powwow. Or we'd say, you know, could we come to your home sometime? And we found leaders within each of these Native American communities. And we would talk to them. And we'd say then at the end of the interview, who, who else do you think <coughs> we should talk to? Who else is out there who would be a good informant? Uh, that's called snowball sampling, and we use that technique a lot. But we just uh, went from person to person as they were identified to us. What do you learn? What we learned is that people, there are people here who feel very strongly that they are Native American, and they're very proud of that fact and who see themselves as significantly different from the rest of Pennsylvanians, the rest of Americans. And the fundamental way in which they see that is they emphasize that they are spiritual animals, that in every aspect of their life they are thinking first and foremost of the Creator and are uh, recognizing the gifts that the Creator has given them in terms of the world around them and they are acknowledging that and um, trying their best to protect it, that they see themselves as the uh, safeguards for the environment. Something you hear Native Americans talk about a great deal is that we need to save this or that or preserve this particular piece of information for the seven generations to come. And they see that as an ongoing responsibility of theirs. The seven generations who will follow us and the seven generations after that, if we're going to maintain these traditions, we need to pass that on we need to curate our ideals. We need to preserve the world around us. Is there a, a continuous line for, uh, in that type of thinking from present day Indians in Pennsylvania back into the distant past or was it kind of lost and the current generation is relearning it? It's both really. And I, I'd say there's even a third strain there. I have certainly talked to people who say that it was handed down to me from my mother and she got it from her mother and so on, that these were stories within the family and we kept things together because they were proud of their Native American heritage even if they had to hide it. It's also the case that you're finding people today who are um, seeking out this information and uh, adopting it. They are reading books, they're talking to people, they're going into the powwows, they're, conf they're meeting people that are Native American there and they're saying, hey, my mother told me that I am Cherokee or Lenape or whatever, can you help me? And usually there is a willingness on the part of that person to take them in and, and show them what they need to do. I've had 
person after person say, I went and I watched this dance and it called to me and I said to one of the dancers, can you teach me this dance? And they said, absolutely. Come, stand with me, move your feet this way. We'll teach you how to dance like a Lenape. Um, you have that. The third strain is that you find wherever you go in the United States, other than probably the Southwest, that the Plains Indian tradition, Lakotas, Cheyennes, Crow, and so on, that they have become sort of the signature Native American tradition. And you find Native Americans from all over the United States adopting Plains Indian customs as their own. Uh, in both books, I, I talk about the fact that there are people from Pennsylvania who go out west and participate in ceremonies, that they use a Plains-style pipe ceremony with Plains-style pipes. They adopt their costuming. Uh, it's a very common kind of thing. And there are skeptics who say, well, then, you know, they're not real Indians. If they're copying these other traditions, uh, you know, they're frauds. But a Native American said to me about this, well, don't you admire fashions from France? Don't you read books printed in England? Well, then you can't be an American. So we're just like you. We see what we like and we adopt it. Is it possible to discern which of the things that are done now, that the traditions, uh, cultural aspects of being Lenape are, are original to Lenape and which have been adopted? I mean, can you tell what uh, original Lenape thinking and traditions were? You can, thanks to people who wrote things down in the 18th and 19th centuries. In, in particular, there were some 19th century historians who wrote extensively about the belief systems of the Lenape. Uh, and you can pick the pieces apart. And you can find, for example, with things like the pipe ceremony, that the Lenape had a pipe ceremony of their own. It didn't follow the very elaborate kind of system the Plains Indians did, but they had pipes. They made them out of clay or they made them out of stone. They had tobacco. They smoked them for spiritual purposes. They didn't smoke recreationally. Um, the, the core of the whole idea was there in Lenape tradition. And they have a myth that talks about how their, their great culture his, uh, hero, a person called Nanabush, uh, gave them the pipe and showed them how to smoke it and told them what the benefits of this would be, that this would center them and make them feel harmonious with the world around them and give them peace. So, you know, they're, they're intertwined with the Plains traditions. When, when you go to a powwow, how much of what you see is the real deal and how much is kind of commercial... Indian wannabe stuff? Well, it depends on the powwow that you go to. You know, there are, I have not been to the kinds of powwows that you're talking about, which are slanted towards tourists. But I have, I've talked to a lot of Native Americans who say they're out there and who tell me that those are not legitimate ones and they don't like those, they don't go to them, that those are shows for non-Indians. The ones that you see mostly around here, one, my favorite one is the Eastern Delaware Nations powwow in Forksville on Father's Day weekend. I, I try to get to that. Too. Where's Forksville? Forksville is in Sullivan County, and the powwow is held at the Sullivan County Fairgrounds. And they make every effort to make it legitimate Lenape, to the extent of turning people away who want to play Indian but who don't have the right kinds of dance costumes or don't know the steps or uh, are making a mockery of their traditions. 
and they're very careful about the vendors that they bring in to sell because there's kind of a country fair atmosphere to a powwow too. But they try to reach out to vendors who are selling legitimate objects. Uh, they may be people who are selling Zuni fetishes or Hopi pots or uh, buckskin costuming from the Midwest or something of that sort, but they're Native American. and uh, So they make an effort in that regard. When you're trying to piece together the history of a tribe like the Lenape or the Susquehannock, what kind of, how do you find out what was going on before European contact? Were there things written down? There were things written down and um, quite extensively to, you, you, might, you might be surprised to hear. Uh, when William Penn came here in 1682, he reached out in friendship to the Native Americans and he had around him his society of friends who was very accepting of Native Americans and who observed them and paid a lot of attention to them. And there's also people throughout the 18th century who lived among the Native Americans and recorded their accounts of them. There's going to be, for example, in this series that my book is the first one uh, in the series to come for Bucknell Press. One of the books that's going to be coming out fairly soon is by a Bucknell professor, a German professor named Catherine Fall, who has been translating the Moravian missionary diaries from Sunbury from the 1740s, 1750s. They're in German and they're written in old German script and it's a very difficult thing to transcribe. But she's picking them apart and she's getting an account of what life was like for Native Americans at that point in time from these Moravian works. Plus, there is the fact that when these people moved west, they didn't abandon their traditions, they carried them with them. And so you can talk to modern day Delawares in Oklahoma or Muncie's in Ontario and they will give you some insight. Uh, but again, there are those 19th century scholars who collected f folklore, who kept stories, who wrote down the mythology. And you, know, you have to piece it together from all of that. And I could probably throw in archeology span too. You go on digs? I have been on digs. I'm not an archeologist per se. I, I've worked in and around archeology span all of my professional life but I, I would be remiss if I called myself an archeologist. I'm a cultural anthropologist. But archeology span can reconstruct what day-to-day -day life was, at least on the economic basis. What kinds of structures did people live in? What was the size of community? What kinds of things are going on there? Did they have agriculture or not? Uh, those kinds of things can be reconstructed from archeology. span Well, can you answer those questions for if you would take the Lenape village in the late 1500s before European contact, what was life like? Uh, it was, depending upon where you were, um, there is a debate among scholars right now as to whether there was any such thing at that point in time as the Lenape. That uh, the Lenape were never as organized into a political entity with no, no centralized leadership in the sense that the Iroquois were. Each community was autonomous, and each community was probably 50 to 70 people at most uh, living in, it appears to be, nuclear family uh, households. They built hemispherical structures out of twigs and bark that are called wigwams. One family per One family per household. each. Uh, they followed the woman's line. They were matrilineal. They claimed descent through the mother's line. Uh, we know from later accounts that women chose their husbands and that um, 
that the man moved in with his wife. If there was another community, they moved into that community. We know that at least some of them engaged in uh, what the Iroquois th call Three Sisters Agriculture. They raised corn, beans, and squash. We know that others who lived along the Susquehanna were able to derive uh, so much food from the Susquehanna, fish primarily, and eels, that they really didn't need to depend much on agriculture. Uh, but you can piece those things together. And there are accounts from historical context of what they wore and how they painted themselves and things of that sort. Were there gender roles like the men hunted and the women? And there were very complementary roles. Uh, it was not a situation where one was considered superior to the other, but a husband-wife team was a complete unit and could take care of itself pretty much. Women, uh, men cleared the fields, women did the agriculture. Men hunted, women prepared the skins, dried the meat, cooked the meals. Uh, the two genders depended upon themselves, uh, on each other extensively. What was life like for a child? A child grew up within this household, was very carefully watched after, uh, went along with mother or father as soon as they were physically able to find out what it was you needed to do to become grown up. They had games. There is an account of a game being played that was somewhat like soccer. I want to read you that, <clears throat> but is in your book about that. You, mm -hmm. you have, quote, uh, Caffrey, a researcher. Mm -hmm describes a game somewhat like soccer played by the traditional Lenape in which women and men played against each other on opposing teams. Men were required to use only their legs to kick a ball toward a goal, but women were allowed to carry the ball with their hands. Women, however, could be tackled by the men. Yes, they could. And, as, and the game that she describes ends in a tie. Now, um, this, this was, oh, uh, how was the, uh, the, the tribe governed? It was a small enough group so that essentially you governed yourself. It, it was like small communities all over the world. There was no privacy in the sense that Americans think of privacy. A, a wigwam is a structure that keeps the weather off from you, but everything you say and do in there can be heard by the next family of the next wigwam. You couldn't get away with anything. You didn't... Uh, uh, there, if you stepped out of line, there would be 10 people there to tell you that you needed to step back. That makes it sound repressive, perhaps, but it was actually a more comfortable kind of thing than that. You were brought up being a Lenape, and you learned what was proper and what was good, and people made an effort to, to stick to that. If they couldn't, if conflict arose, villages underwent fission, they would split up and people would go their separate ways. You know, if you weren't welcome here, you went someplace else. Was there a chief? No. There are people who are called chiefs by Europeans, but the Europeans routinely mistook traditional roles among Native Americans as being sovereign leaders like a king or some other kind of European figure. In the Lenape culture, they were called sachems, and they were respected people whose primary role was to act as spokesperson for the group with the outside world. So if you came on them as a European person, this individual would be the one pushed out to talk to you. And the Europeans immediately called that person chief or some similar kind of thing. And often bestowed those titles in the 18th century to individuals. Uh, a man named T.D. Uskin, when the Lenapes moved into the Wyoming Valley uh, as part of an agreement to get out of the Philadelphia area. 
the Europeans it ordained him in essence. You are now chief of the Lenapes. There's no idea. There's no sense that he understood what that meant in their point of view, because they just didn't have a role like that. Iroquois had chiefs. Apparently, the Susquehannocks did too, but the Lenapes did not. They were like small-scale indigenous societies the world over. Each, each community lived unto itself. And in fact, it's been argued, and I think persuasively by some historians, that there wasn't even a sense of being Lenape in southeastern Pennsylvania until probably well into the 18th century, after smallpox had so reduced their numbers and they'd been pushed further and further into communities out into the west that then people started to see commonality among each other and started to apply common labels. But one of the things that happens to me quite often is I get an email from somebody and they say, I'm, I live in Montgomery County and I've always been told that a, a community of Indians lived down the road and they were called this and such. Who were those people? Well, they were probably people today that we call Lenape. But they didn't have any sense of belonging to a Lenape nation. They were their own community. And so they had their own name for themselves. Any idea how many Indians were in Pennsylvania at the time of European contact? I don't have any idea. Uh, the people who look at that question have extremes uh, in terms of it. There's a, a, one of my former colleagues from the state system of higher education, a man named Marshall Becker, says there were probably no more than 500 Lenape in all of southeastern Pennsylvania. The more common kind of idea is that there were probably 1,500 to 2,000. You know, their numbers were not huge. And Susquehannocks? Susquehannocks, uh, some of their communities were in the three and four thousands in Lancaster County. So it's estimated there were probably about 15,000 of them altogether. Did, did the Lenape, of you mentioned Susquehannocks fighting the Iroquois. Did the Lenape yeah. get involved in wars? Only very late. You know, they chose to avoid war as much as they possibly could. Uh, when they got drawn into war, which happened at, uh, in 1763 with Pontiac's Rebellion, is the first time that you see the Lenape taking up arms against Europeans and doing very well at it, in, in fact, being very good warriors. But up until that time, they chose to avoid conflict as much as possible. But they got pushed too far. Oh, a quote from uh, your book about when they might have been pushed too far. A Lenape Sachem named uh, Shingus is supposed to have asked General Braddock, uh, the British general, mm -hmm. if natives who supported the British would have their claims to land recognized by the Brit if the British won. Braddock replied that no savage should inherit the land. Not quite believing what they heard, a party of Lenapes repeated the question to Braddock the next day, but received an identical answer. When told that the Lenapes would not uh, would not aid him given his attitude, Braddock replied that he did not need them. And Braddock met a, a bad end. Mm -hmm. Yes, he did. That's uh, when uh, the Lenape decided to take they, up arms? They did. Uh, their phrase for it was, we take off our petticoats. That was actually uh, something, a label that had been placed on them by the Iroquois at some earlier point in time. One of the key events in the history of Lenapes with the British happened in 1737 when uh, Thomas Penn, William Penn's son, came up with a document that he said had been signed by Lenape sachems or chiefs and that granted the Penn family 
all the land within a day and a half's walk from Philadelphia. And the Lenape said, you know, there is no such document. And in fact, historians had never found it. Uh, he, he, Penn claimed that he had found it in archives in London, but it, it's never reappeared. But he said, you know, this is our, you know, this is our right. And the Lenape said to themselves, well, you know, how far can they walk in a, in a day? Penn cheated. He sent out an advance party that cleared a pathway through the woods along the Lehigh and Schuylkill Rivers. He hired the two fastest men he could find in Philadelphia, and they ran. And they ended up covering an area that enclosed 800 square miles, or about the size of the state of Rhode Island. And the Lenape response to this was to ask the Iroquois to stand up for them. You know, at that particular point in time, the the Pennsylvania legislature had recognized the Iroquois as a spokesperson for the native peoples of Pennsylvania. Uh, they were the powerful Native American group in this part of the world. And so they said, you know, we give you suzerainty over everything else. And the Iroquois said, uh, you know, no, we're not going to get involved in this. Uh, you Lenapes, you're just women. You know, if you can't stand up for yourselves, we're not going to go to war for you. So when 1763 comes along, the Lenapes say, okay, we're not women. We're taking off our petticoats. We can fight. And in fact, right through Tecumseh's rebellion in the early 18th century, the Lenapes were greatly feared fighters. You have uh, under the heading the Lancaster Massacre of 1763, mm -hmm. the Pennsylvania legislature had instituted a scalp bounty during the French and Indian War right. in which they offered hard cash in exchange for native scalps. Mm -hmm. The legislature did not rescind the bounty and did not rescind the bounty when the war ended. They did not. In fact, I'm told, I've not been able to get confirmation of this, but historians have told me that it was 1920 before the Pennsylvania legislature uh, rescinded that bounty. So anybody could bring in an, any Indian scalp? Theoretically. I'm not, no, there's evidence that that ever happened, but because they were paying Spanish gold dollars for those scalps in the 18th century. And I think that was over by the end of that century. Can you talk about two French and Indian, uh, well, you can talk about as many as you want, but two I want to ask about the Lancaster Massacre. Right. With the Paxton Boys? Paxton was, Boys, yeah. And then the other is the Wyoming Valley Massacre. Okay. Uh, well, the, the 1763 massacre of the Susquehannocks at Conestoga was... Uh, spurred by a group of people who called them themselves the Paxton Boys. They were from Paxton or Paxtang here around Harrisburg. And they were greatly angered by Native American tactics, war tactics in the French and Indian War. Local people were not involved in that. There was, for the most part, Shawnees and others that the French brought in to fight on their behalf. But there had been some, some ugly things that had happened during the war. So the war is over. The Paxton boys decided that they were going to retaliate against Native Americans in Pennsylvania. There was a small community of Susquehannocks living along the uh, Conestoga Creek. Uh, they f descended on their community and, and killed, I think, three people initially. The Susquehannocks fled. They went into Lancaster, where the local sheriff promised them sanctuary and, in fact, housed them in the local jail. But when the Paxton boys marched into Lancaster on Christmas Eve of 1763, the sheriff stood aside and the Paxton boys went in and killed all the Susquehannocks in the jail. The myth in Pennsylvania, what I think of as a myth in a way, and what Native Americans tell me is a myth, is that those were the last of the Susquehannocks. But uh, 
the, even the authorities on this is a man named Barry Kent from southeastern Pennsylvania who is an archaeologist, was a state archaeologist at one point in time, and has written a book about the Susquehannocks. And he says, well, you know, there's evidence that this person wasn't there that day, and that person wasn't there that day, and these people were working out on somebody's farm. And there's also accounts of Susquehannocks into the 19th century in among the Iroquois, living among the Iroquois, uh, pressing claims against the state of Pennsylvania and Lancaster City, saying, you know, you, you should uh, account for what we used to own and that you simply seized after that, that massacre. But that was the, you know, that was the 1763 Paxton Boys. You said that the Susquehannocks at one point numbered in the thousands? Yeah. How did they diminish to the point that it was just a scattering here and there? Smallpox, overwhelmingly. Smallpox just uh, did away with Native Americans in the Northeast for all practical purposes, and the Midwest as well. It just, it, it killed indiscriminately. Uh, as much as 80 to 85 percent of Native American populations were wiped out by the disease. So there was that issue. And there was also the issue that the Susquehannocks fought with the English in Maryland. Uh, it's a very complicated history where the Susquehannocks are first sought out by the Marylanders. They fought on the same side. They fought on the same side initially against the Senecas. And then for reasons that I'm not familiar with, the Marylanders turned on the Susquehannocks and attacked them and uh, killed large numbers of them and only a small remnant population was able to get back to Lancaster County and, and settle there. You know, the combination of smallpox and war just, just took their numbers out. It did it to the Lenape too, but not as extensively. The other one was the Wyoming Valley Massacre. Okay, well there's, there's two Wyoming Massacres. Hmm. And it's interesting to me that the one that is called the Wyoming Massacre is the one that occurs at, uh, during the Revolutionary War where a group of British uh, Army and Seneca warriors attack the community in Forty Fort of American colonists and kill a number of people, including one of the part one of the Paxton boys, by the way, who was there at that that particular battle. Um, but earlier in time, in the 1750s, there was another Wyoming massacre, the first Wyoming massacre, where the uh, w which was set off by the death of the Lenape king. Uh, his house burned down with him in it and his son believed that the fire had been set by uh, American settlers and that his father was killed by them and he uh, worked up some passions in the local community and they, attack, uh, they attacked the American settlers and were very successful, drove most of them off at that particular point in time. Um, don't want to run out of time before we talk about the, the early history of, okay. of Indians in America. And you have a chapter, it's chapter one, Native American prehistory in the Susquehanna Valley going right. back 11,000 years? 11,000 years at least, yeah. And you say 11,000 BP? BP, yeah, before present. Okay. Archaeologists use that rather than the BCAD kind of thing. It's, it's less confusing. You don't have to stop and say, well, yeah, at what point does that start? Uh, who, who were they? Who were the first we don't Indians know. here? We don't know. How do you know they were here? Uh, because they left their campsites, they left their artifacts. In some cases, they leave the remains of meals that they had. Um, all over North America, you find from that particular point of time a very similar culture. It's called Paleo-Indian culture by archaeologists. And nobody knows what their ethnicity was. 
um, but from the west coast to the east coast. It's a very similar, at least, artifact collection that's associated with them. Uh, how, when, you, when you find an arrowhead, how do you figure out by the shape of it how old it is or what tribe it is? Did, did tribes have specific styles of arrowheads that they made? There, there probably was to a certain extent, for the, but for the most part, archaeologists distinguish among Paleo-Indian, archaic, and woodland points, depending upon uh, the, po the particular point in time. Woodland is coming up to the point of contact. The Paleo-Indian experience is from whenever that started until about 8,000 years before present, and the archaic falls in between. And the, the diagnostic projectile points, or spear points, or whatever they are, are very characteristic. You know, the Paleo-Indians make these long tapering points that are called Clovis points. And beautifully made, beautifully constructed. And they were apparently hafted on spears. And for whatever reason, that tradition stops. And you find the uh, archaic period. And the archaic period uses a much smaller point. It's probably still a spear point, because there's no evidence of bows and arrows until relatively recently in time. But it's got uh, a notched base to it. Very characteristic archaic point. And then you get into the modern area, era and you find these little triangular points. They were actually put on arrows. Nobody was going to put something this long on the end of an arrow. They put a little bitty uh, triangle of stone on an arrow and then used that and that's the woodland point. And there's confusion at the point of, of interconnection. You know, Late archaic and early woodland are often very hard even for an experienced archaeology archaeologists to tell apart. But in a broad sense, each one of those types is characteristic of a, a time period. So you, you know roughly what you've got. What are you able to construct from what they have found of what life was like for those people 11,000 years ago? The thing that uh, strikes me is that I was told coming up through my education that Pennsylvania was covered by glaciers the last ice age was here, that there were Eskimo-like people, few in number out there, stalking woolly mammoths and killing them to survive and things of that sort. More recent information suggests that the glaciers never got very far into Pennsylvania, that uh, the farthest point was about 20 miles north of Williamsport. And then there was about 100 kilometers of Arctic tundra, and then the rest was kind of Along rivers, it was forest land, and in between, it was kind of scrubby grassland. Uh, in the east, you don't find any evidence that humans actually killed woolly mammoths by themselves. You know, you don't find any association. You don't find in in the west, you find mammoth bones with projectile points embedded in a leg bone, or the, in one dramatic case, they pulled up the mammoth skeleton and there's a human underneath it. You know, apparently mammoth fell on top of the hunter at that point in time. Nothing like that in the East. The best you can say is that uh, humans might have cross, come across some dead mammoths and they used the, the flesh and uh, they scavenged some of the bones and the tusks and they made them into tools or something of that sort. But they were probably very much like the Inuit uh, hunter-gatherers of the early 20th century, living in small camps, uh, very heavily dependent upon hunting, there's a site on the Delaware that shows that there was some collection of wild plant foods that was going on at the same time. The Susquehanna River was where it is now, and so it was probably, as it was right up until present, very abundant with fish life. 
you know, the shad runs in the spring and so on, gave you abundant food. And they lived hunting and gathering. How big is a woolly mammoth? A woolly mammoth is bigger than an African elephant. Uh, yeah, I understand that we now have the DNA all decoded for woolly mammoths, and people are talking about cloning them now, so maybe we'll get to see in, in our lifetime yet. But they were impressive creatures, and they had uh, very long tusks. You know, no modern elephant uh, has anything nearly like a mammoth tusk. And mastodons? Mastodons are in a different environment. They don't overlap in, in their ranges, but that's about all I know about them. I don't claim to be a paleo animal specialist. Now, the, the, the people who lived here 11,000 years ago, did, did they migrate or did they pretty much stay put? They, prob they presumably migrated. And some of the best evidence for that is the fact that the stone that you find in a paleo Indian site often comes from many kilometers away. In some cases, as much as uh, 800 kilometers away in, Pen in Pennsylvania. Uh, one site has got stone that would have been f from north of Lake Superior. Either was there was some trade network going on or they roamed quite a bit. And we know from modern day hunters and gatherers that they had rather large territories and that they did move around quite a bit. They were very mobile people. Any evidence of shelters that they built? No. No, none at all. Where did they live? Uh, they probably were like shelters you find in archaeological sites in the old world, which were um, you know, one dramatic case in Russia, you find that they use mammoth bones and they piled them up into a kind of hemispherical structure and then probably uh, stretched skins across them. Uh, but nothing like that's been found in Pennsylvania or even as far as I know in the rest of North America. Now you mentioned that this is the first book in a series. It is. What, uh, stories what are the topics and how often will we see books from them? Uh, stories of Susquehanna is a series, and it's edited by Alf Sievers and Katie Fall, who are professors at Bucknell University. And the second one in the series by a woman named Janet McCaffrey, who is an emeritus professor of anthropology at Bucknell, is going to be about ethnic groups in Shimokan during the coal mining era. And that one's due to come out fairly soon. And following that, uh, there are three that are in the hopper, if you will, uh, one is going to be on the utopian communities along the river in the 19th century. Katie Falls' book is the one I talked about earlier where she's uh, translating the Moravian dish, uh, diaries from the 18th century. And there's one on the historic flour mills along the river that were using the river for their power. And there's ones planned on geology and geography and the natural history of the area and the coal industry and so on. Yeah, uh, they have some 20 books in mind but I don't think they have a schedule as to uh, when they will come out. Uh, getting back to the uh, Indians in Pennsylvania today, mm -hmm. uh, you write about, um, I don't know if it's your chapter or not, about uh, the revival of the Lenape language. Or Susan the, uh, Tay Freed's article, yes. What is the other language that? Um, she actually is, is reviving, she's involved in the reviving of the Muncie, Muncie dialect of Lenape. <clears throat> Uh, it's believed that there were three main dialects to Lenape, as best we know, at least from the time of contact. And the Muncie dialect was the one spoken in northern Pennsylvania and uh, the Hudson River Valley of New York. And that's the community that's now in Ontario. They call themselves Muncies. Have you tried to learn the language? I have not. I have listened to it. I have read uh, Susan Tafe's Reed's work. And I can't begin to fathom the language. It's a very difficult language. And there are classes in it now? There are classes in that. There's also classes in the Unami dialect, which was the southeastern Pennsylvania dialect, 
that are taught at uh, Bryn Mawr by a member of the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania. Uh, that, the Yanami dialect was kept alive by the people in Oklahoma. The Muncie dialect was kept alive by the people in Ontario. And Susan Tafer Reed has gone up to Ontario, gone to their school, learned their language, and is now teaching it to people in northeastern Pennsylvania of Lenape descent. What got you interested in this? this is, is this your second book on this subject, or are there more? It, it is. Uh, with some luck, there's going to be a third, but uh, you know, this is the second one at this point. Well, as I was saying earlier, it was the interest of a student who got me involved in this, and I just found it fascinating. I had always been interested in Native Americans. I, uh, I went for my undergrad degree and my master's degree to Michigan State University, and there were a lot of Native Americans in the anthropology program there. And so I interacted with them, and uh, they had a lot of work going on with Native America. And almost all the early American anthropologists studied Native Americans. And so if you read the history of anthropology, you're simply immersed in Native America. And so it's, it's, in a sense, it's coming back home to me. And you said, you mentioned the, the Eastern Delaware's nation, Eastern Delaware Eastern nations. Delaware nations, yeah. What is that? It's a community of Native Americans. It's an incorporated and a nonprofit organization that is based in um, northeastern Pennsylvania. They're mostly in the Tawanda uh, area or um, Bradford County, Sullivan County overall. They own a, a piece of land. In fact, for, for the picture on the cover of this book is taken from their land up in that part of the world. And they hope one day to have their own culture center and library built on it to remember the history of their people. Uh, very interesting organization that goes back into the 1980s. They've owned this land since 99. They're you know, very organized, very well put together little community of people. How often do you come across something in your research that it surprises you? Oh, every day, you know, constantly. What kinds of things? Uh, recollections that people had that I uh, hadn't come across before or memories of some ancestor or a place or a site. I'm all, all the time getting people telling me about, well, we used to go out to this place along such and such creek and that's where the ancestors were buried and every year we had to go out after the spring floods and recover the graves and the skulls were floating down river. You know, you, you hear things like that all the time. You say, my goodness. You know, there's all kinds of things going on in the state you didn't know anything about. Do you have another book in the works? Uh, I hope to have another book in the works. I am writing a book about an, an Indian healing arts organization called Totem Rhythms. Uh, they're a group from southeastern Pennsylvania. Present day? or Present day, yes. yeah. It's uh, two artists, art professors, in fact, at Cheney University have done this. They are both Eastern Delaware Nations members, and they construct what they call story poles for institutions or organizations built around local traditions with Native American symbols built into it. And they've completed 20 of these projects to date, and so they've asked me to write a book about what they've accomplished so far. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that. We've been speaking with David Minderhout. He is the author and editor of this book, Native Americans in the Susquehanna River Valley, Past and Present. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.